This is the Gartner Futures Lab podcast. Welcome to Gartner Futures Lab podcast. My name is Marty Resnick. I'm your host and co-lead of the Gartner Futures Lab. And I'm really excited today because we have Sandy Carter here with us. She is the author of the new book, The Tiger and the Rabbit. She's recognized as top 10 most powerful women in tech for CNN. She's a chief operating officer and all around emerging tech geek like me. So I appreciate you being here, Sandy. So if we can get started, maybe you can give a a little bit of introduction about yourself, who you are and and your interest in a lot of these emerging technologies. I think that would be great. Yeah. So um, I have been in tech my entire career. I didn't start out that way. I had wanted to be a doctor, but circumstances as they were, I had to switch over uh, to tech when I became allergic to some of the smells and chemicals in a doctor's office. And I have been doing tech ever since. I wanted to be the actually the first woman on the moon. I obviously didn't make that, but I was able to, you know, use some of our emerging tech with artificial intelligence at AWS to help get Rover to Mars. So I think that that's kind of cool. I love emerging tech because it is the next generation of where we're going. I like to help shape the future. And I love being so curious and asking all the questions, why, what, and then helping to hopefully, uh, you know, impact where we are headed with a group of folks. So that's really why I do what I do. I've done that at startups and large enterprises, which I think is very um, helpful being both, uh, you know, scrappy and a startup, but also knowing how to work across large enterprises to make things happen with innovation and emerging tech in particular. And I love to share my experiences. That's why I've written, this is my sixth book. I like sharing, uh, you know, what I've learned and then having others also share and learn from my experiences so we can even bar raise up to the next level. So in this podcast, we talk a lot about futurism and what the future can look like. I like how you say shape the future. What are some examples or ways that you think that folks are able to shape that future? I think people can shape the future in a couple of ways. One, I think they can build it. And I I am a big builder myself. They can leverage the new tech to create new applications and new solutions. But I don't think, Marty, that it's just about building. I think the go-to-market portion of shaping the future is equally as important. You know, education, for example, comes to mind today, if you think about AI or you think about the metaverse or blockchain, a lot of people don't really understand what those things are. And so I think part of shaping the future means being able to educate people on it, being able to show use cases, how it could be used, being able to imagine the future, how it could be used in addition to how people are using it today. And I also think that, you know, policy is really important in shaping the future. For example, you know, right now, you know, in the metaverse space, a big policy is how do we protect our children? I think that's as important as building or go to market, which is what are the policies that we're going to set and adhere to probably in a global fashion, not just by country, because you can't just have a metaverse in one country. So I think those are some of the ways that people can shape the future is to, you know, build it, 
to take it to market by educating, building use cases, imagining new use cases, shaping policy and where that might go as well. All of those things to me are shaping the future. And in fact, I, I do a lot of things for, you know, girls who want to get into tech. And they always ask me, you know, Sandy, are they going to lock us in a basement and we're just going to be sitting there coding away? And I really love the fact that there are so many careers in STEM and emerging tech that are not just, you know, the coding piece. Every element of it is just so essential. And it really opens their eyes to the potential to shape the future. Yeah. And I love that as a dad of three girls. I love those opportunities that you're talking about. Dad. Yeah. A girl dad. Girl dads are amazing. So thank you for I'm sure you've encouraged your daughters in STEM. Yeah. And I have a, uh, a boy as well and encouraging him in that direction as well. One of the things that you talk about in your latest book, and we'll, we'll talk about the tiger and the rabbit today, it was really interesting read. Uh, one thing really stuck out at me is that you talk about this idea that you either need to be a disruptor or you're going to be disrupted. Can you expand on that a little bit? And where does that come into the context of shaping the future and organizations need to look at the future and stuff like that? Yeah. So, um, you know, I've experienced this a lot um, in different companies I worked for. You know, in one of my past companies, we presented cloud several times in tech committees and business committees. And, um, you know, company did not want to move to the cloud because it would hurt their transactional business. And as such, they were disrupted. I often think of Polaroid and, you know, study that whole case study in Kodak and kind of what happened to them you know, they were monsters. They were the big kahuna in the space. And, um, you know, they didn't see digital pictures coming and therefore, you know, didn't make the right moves. And so I think that the best companies, the most innovative companies out there are companies who are always looking ahead, always looking around the corner and looking at those technologies and deciding which of those technologies they can go ahead and adopt, even if it hurts their current business model, but in the long term is the right thing to do. And I know that's always really a hard pill to swallow, but I think if not, I think you get left behind in business and you're not shaping the future. I really love the way that, you know, AWS does this. They constantly are looking at how they can innovate and disrupt themselves. And I think because of that, they're very successful in making new product introductions, driving prices down, you know, just overall and shaping the future of where things are headed and where things are going. And I think more companies need to be like that versus protecting their, their base, but to really experiment more and see where the technology could bring them. Because I think in the long run, it will pay off. That's my view. In the book, uh, Tiger and the Rabbit, you talk about three particular technologies, uh, Metaverse, AI, and Web3. And all three of those technologies, I mean, there's a lot about them, but they all have different definitions. People take different stances on them. It seems like there's a lot of hype. And then we go to the trough, disillusionment, and then back up to the hype. They're kind of all over the place. Maybe you can just spend a minute. How, how do you define metaverse, for example, and, and where would you say or what would you say is the state of metaverse today? So my definition of the metaverse is a digital world and you can live in it, you can work in it, you can interact in it, you can play in it, 
essentially you have a social presence in it from anywhere at any time. It does not assume AR and VR because I know of many metaverses who, you know, are available for the masses, Marty, where you don't have to have extra tooling. But there are some metaverses where you do. I think it's really about having that digital presence. I think the best metaverses as well are ones that don't try to replicate what we do here in real life, but they try to create an experience for the, the user that is suited for a digital world. And so that's my definition. It is pretty broad today because I think that we're still working through precisely what it will mean in the future. And I would say right now we're at the very, very early stages. In fact, I like to say we're at the dial-up phase of this technology. And uh, maybe some of your listeners don't even know what I mean by dial-up phase. But, you know, when you used to use the internet, you had to dial up and connect to it, right? Uh, it was made famous in several movies where people were waiting a long time to get connected. I think that's where we are here. We're still shaping it and forming it and even coming up with use cases. Uh, there are some use cases out there today that I think are very powerful, but I don't think, you know, I, I still think my favorite use case hasn't actually emerged yet. I think there'll be so many more use cases for the metaverse and where it will go. I often get asked, you know, hey, what's that killer app of the metaverse? And I'm like, well, let's let's explore the metaverse first and killer app will come, but we've got a little bit of time to get there. But you bring up AI and Web3. So if metaverse is kind of this digital world that you may be living and interacting and socializing, et cetera, and where does AI and Web3 come into the equation then? So I think, you know, if you think about Web3, um, Web3 is all about digital identi identity and an ownership platform. So it's really a new approach to the internet that is open and decentralized. And what I mean by that is today, a lot of data is held and owned by a set of platform players that are out there. And therefore that data is monetized by them. And in fact, a report I just read said that um, Meta and Google made $100 billion off of selling data they collected from their platforms. In Web3, that data is actually owned by you and I, Marty. As the user, we own our data. And therefore, because it's based on the blockchain, it's decentralized. Therefore, I monetize my data and I decide who gets to see it, when they get to see it, how they get to see it, for how long they get to see, how much they get to see. That's all decided by me. And I see a big movement today in the next generation. I have two daughters uh, really wanting data and their digital identity, which is their presence online to be owned by them. I think it's a very important concept and one that, you know, we see emerge, you know, even in, in tools like Roblox where, you know, my daughters go and build and they earn digital currency, but their data is their data. What they own is theirs. It's not owned by someone else. And then if I think about AI, uh, you know, many people think that OpenAI and, and ChatGPT is the first incarnation of AI. I hear people say that all the time. When I worked for IBM, I worked on Watson. And Watson, you know, for me has lots of things that has improved and contributed to the AI that we know and love today. I see AI as an enabler, as a tool to help and assist for example, you know, in um, let's take the metaverse, AI can be used to generate 
super cool avatars for you. An avatar is a digital persona of yourself, and that can uh, be used to represent yourself in the digital world. That's just one example. I think there are many others. And I think these technologies, in my mind, are all converging. Um, so if you think about it, like, you know, if you think about one of the big challenges for AI today, it's deep fakes. Well, Web3 built on blockchain can actually help do a social verification of is that real or not. Based on the hashes that are used in the blockchain, you can identify a picture that's been altered or something that's been changed or actually declare this is mine. I own this. And so I see these technologies working together in the future to create that next generation of the internet, kind of a combo in my mind. And in fact, I don't know if you saw, Marty, I just read an article last week that the European Commission is calling this Web 4. And for them, Web 4 is a combination of Web 3, digital identity, metaverse, AI, and spatial computing. So that's what they're calling Web 4 for their, I thought that was quite fascinating. That is because I kind of roll that underneath the metaverse umbrella. So when I think about metaverse, uh, I think about it kind of three ways. So one is the transport area. That's where we go to a metaverse. So we get into virtual worlds. We get into gaming. I think you talk about all those things in your book as well. Uh, we've got the transform, which is how spatial computing will transform our physical world. And then we've got that transact, which I think you and I are aligned on the Web3 side. That's the infrastructure and economy, et cetera, of the metaverse. And I, I kind of bring those three things together. So it's interesting they're calling it Web 4 at this point. We just need to label things, something new all the time, it seems like. I love that definition too. And, uh, you know, since you and I have chatted, I've actually used that a couple of times because I really think that it gives a lot of clarity to each of the layers and people can grasp it. I think it also helps you to kind of determine where we are today in the in the journey of the metaverse. And everything is a journey, you know, your trough of disillusionment. It seems like, you know, that's a pretty cool Gartner thing because it always seems to happen, right? You always get people so psyched up and then boom, and then it comes back. And I really love the fact that you have those three layers. So so well done on that framing. I think that was your your piece of work, right? Yeah, I appreciate that. That was in our metaverse research. Absolutely. I think overall, it, it, what's really interesting about Metaverse, for example, is kind of that ownership model. And you talked about that when it comes to ownership of data. But I think an interesting conversation around Metaverse is who owns Metaverse experiences really has a lot to do with who owns your data, who can resell your data. And is there a single neck to choke if something goes wrong or to regulate or something like that? In your book, the tiger and the rabbit, you seem to focus on, and I think you were talking about this earlier, really a decentralized model where nobody really owns it. Maybe it's a decentralized autonomous organization that leads it or whatever else. But where do centralized models and private metaverses fit into the conversation? Centralized being like Meta Horizons, for example, or Roblox. Those are owned by corporations, not built on blockchain. And then you have private where... Maybe organizations are building their own, what we call introverses, internal metaverses. Where does all that fit into the conversation? Yeah, I think a lot of these private use cases are going to really emerge. And I think especially driven by AI and a lot of the bad things that have happened already, you know, where people have input data into an AI engine 
and then boom, boom, you know, that, it, that data is now no longer that company's data, but that data is now, you know, the owner, whoever creates the learning model, right? I think a lot of this is going to emerge as we move forward. I think that the point is that the person who created the data should decide if the data is shared or not. So even in, you know, if you think about, you know, let's take Roblox, right? If you go into Roblox and your daughters, I don't know if they do this today, but, you know, they're builders inside of Roblox. They're building something. They decide whether they want to, you know, share that, but essentially they own it. And so I do believe that it really comes down to a little bit different thought about the internet that's not maybe business oriented first, but more people oriented first. And so the people are creator of the data. And I think that they should therefore own that data. So I'll give you a great example that I used in the book. And that that was based on Roblox, which is what we would consider like a web 2.5 because they're not built on blockchain yet. They're moving there. But Forever 21, which is a retailer, and they do all these really fun and funky, you know, fad-like clothing. And they wanted to engage with a younger generation of audience. And so they got together, they brought some of their designers in and they created this, what I would consider a metaverse based on Roblox where designers and young girls and young men would come in and they would help create, you know, the next t-shirt, the next um, hat, the next, you know, whatever that happens to be. And they did that. And then they granted the rights of that material, even though each of these people contributed to it. So that Forever 21 could produce it and sell it. And it increased engagement with their customers because their customers were not only creating, but they were learning. I mean, you know, I know my daughter was like, wow, I'm getting to work with real designers, right? Real designers in the metaverse. It's super cool. And so it was really a win-win for the data, for the input they were giving. They got something out of it. And then the company, Forever 21, was able to sell it. It did boost their sales. It's helped their brand image. It's improved their customer loyalty. I think this is a great example of how that ownership platform will come to be in the future. Someone maybe leveraging or building on top of a platform, getting permission from the people who are contributing, and then leveraging and using that with each party winning, having a winning play in that. I think that's a great example of how I think the future will be. All right. And so let's get to your book. So you have a lot of those examples in the book, which I love. What I really love about the book, it's really unique because the first half of the book is like a fable, as you call it. And then the second half of the book is kind of like best practices. So it's called The Tiger and the Rabbit. Maybe you can spend a minute. Where does that title come from? And maybe an overview of, of the book itself. So I'll give a little bit of, um, of background. So Wiley, who is the publisher, came to me and they said, you know, we'd really love for you to write a business fable. Like you've written a lot of business books, but why not write a business fable? And the reason, Marty, was, you know, some of the things that you and I talked about, you know, explaining the metaverse and explaining Web3 and explaining AI is hard. And so could, could I write the book in such a way you know, that it could be a story and then the story could turn into a set of frameworks. I wasn't the first one to do this, obviously. Patrick wrote a book that I actually love called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which is another widely published book. It's one of their bestsellers. 
And so I, um, I actually, you know, reread his book, which I had read before to try to really grasp the way to do a business fable. So the way the business fable came about was simply as a story. Let's make it easy. Let's educate it in an easy fashion. Let's put it in storytelling. Um, and Marty, one of my favorite things are quotes. And one of my favorite quotes says, tell me the facts and I'll believe, but tell me a story and it will live in my heart forever. And so that's what I was attempting to do. I would love for anybody who, who reads it to tell me if I managed to do that was to tell this in a story so it was easy to understand. The title actually flipped several different times. When we started, Wiley was really wanting to go with a title, something like the metaverse mindset or the AI mindset or the new emerging tech mindset. But when we had people read it, and a lot of companies like Pepsi, for example, who uh, did one of the quotes on the back cover, what they grasped out of it was one part was uh, this piece where I talk about forming a rabbit team. And a rabbit team is different than a tiger team. Most companies today, most brands today, will have a tiger team. Uh, I've been in many tiger teams throughout my career where, you know, there's a problem to solve. So they, the company gets a team together. It's called a tiger team. They go and attack the problem. That's why it's called a tiger team. And then they disband. But for looking ahead at future, and you know this, Marty, because you do this every day, you really can't like come together, decide something, and then disband. It's really more of a contiguous role where you're looking at trends, you're seeing how they're converging, and you're giving advice and counsel. And so I recommended that companies form rabbit teams. Um, rabbit teams are fast. They're small but mighty. They stay together. Um, I gave three different kind of choices of how you could organize it, but they stay together because they're, they're learning as they're going and they're accumulating that knowledge so that they can better predict based on history as well, based on the past. And so I decided to call this a rabbit team. Plus, you know, if you're in the Web3 metaverse world, you always talk about going down the rabbit hole. So I felt like that made sense as well. Pepsi actually read the book and they actually changed the name of their team and changed the composition from a tiger team that was going to come together and then disband to a rabbit team. So instead of having a COE or a tiger team, they, they called it a rabbit team after reading the book. And so because of that, we actually changed the name of the book from, you know, the AI mindset or metaverse mindset to the tiger and the rabbit, which is also fitting for a fable, right? To have something like that in there. I don't know. What do you think about that? Did you, did you like that? I, I really liked the title. And when you started explaining the difference between a tiger and rabbit team, even in the book as well, I thought that made a lot of sense. It's really interesting because when I think about fables, Right. You always kind of think about these different animals and magical places and magical beings and stuff like that. So I thought it was really fitting just because, you know, it's not just another book on the metaverse or AI or Web3. It actually is kind of a story. The other thing is uh, listeners know this about me already is that I love reading and writing science fiction stories. And as a futurist, I think science fiction, along with other ways of storytelling like fables, are the best way to share complex ideas. Because people just get it and they remember it. And I think that's what was so important about this book. And this idea of the tiger and the rabbit is you get it. It clicks right real quick. And then once I get it, now it's much easier for me to understand what I should do with it. And so that's what I really like about it. Thank you. That's great. 
I have to give Wiley a lot of credit for that. And Patrick, too, because I did send him a set of questions. He was the master at it. You, have you read his book, right, Marty? Uh, no, I haven't yet. No. You should definitely read it. It's really good about team building and how you should build a team. I love the way he tells a story at the beginning, and then he does frameworks at the back. It's, it's really a, a good read if you haven't read it. So quick plug, what's the uh, author's name and uh, title of the book for our listeners? So it's called, um, let's see, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. You can get it on Amazon. And uh, the author is Patrick Linanosi. It's L-E-N-C-I-O-N-I. It's a great book. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that. So um, let's get back to your book a little bit. So we've got this story about this company, um, obviously fictional company. I think it's called Edgy Maven. Where did you come up with that name? So Marty, the the uh, edgy maven was really created because, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, edgy, uh, I wanted something to be leading edge. That's what I was thinking about. And then I just love the word maven because it really designates an expert or someone who is, you know, really powerful in their field. And I just felt like, you know, as we were looking at this, I wanted the company to be one that could be any company. So I had a couple of people say, well, we should make it a financial services company or a retail company or a fashion company. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted it to be applicable for anybody in any industry and any type of company. And so that's how the the name of the company I use as the experimental company in there came about. And you introduce a lot of interesting characters. I think V is the main character, as you can probably guess. Rex is my favorite. He's kind of like the analyst, the expert. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, Rex said something really interesting in the book. He just wanted people to understand three things when he was talking about metaverse and AI and stuff. He said, I, I want you to, I'm paraphrasing obviously here. I, I want you to understand what it is. I want you to understand the business outcomes and I want you to understand the challenges. And the reason I love that is when I talk about emerging technologies with clients, I always talk about creating an emerging tech wheel. You need to answer three questions clearly when it comes to looking at emerging tech, it's this idea of what are the outcomes, what are the opportunities, and what are the obstacles? So the minute I read that, I'm like, I, I think I'm a Rex. Uh, where did you come up with these ideas for the characters? And curious, which was kind of your favorite? When I was asked to write a, a business fable, I actually went and took a class on how to write fiction. And one of the things that they asked, us, asked you to do is to develop characters. And they said the best characters are actually a combination of people that you have met throughout your lifetime. And so I kind of pulled a little bit of different people I had met, some of my favorite people, into each of these characters. Um, and so V, V is a nickname. I love nicknames. And it's short for Victoria. And, you know, I wanted there, I actually wanted there to be a really strong female leader in the space, Marty, mostly because I think that Innovation and emerging tech needs diversity in it. Um, you get higher innovation with a diverse team. And right now, the numbers for the metaverse, there's only 11% women in the space, only 15% in AI. So the numbers are really small. And so one of my other favorite quotes is, if you can see it, you can be it. So I really wanted my change agent to be a woman, a technical woman, savvy, not afraid to take on a challenge, but still human, right? Like she brings cookies in and she's got her favorite walking path. And so that's how I created her. And Rex 
is actually a combination of many people that I've met who've taught me a, a lot. Um, you know, Daryl Plummer is part of Rex. Uh, I think Daryl is, Daryl Plummer, if you don't know, is a Gartner, what, what is he considered, a fellow? I don't know. He's the Gartner Fellow, Distinguished Vice President, co-lead of the Futures Lab. He does everything. He does everything. Yeah, so he's partially my Rex. Um, you know, some of the work I read from you, you're partially my Rex. I've had professors and teachers, like I took AI, believe it or not, in college. I had a professor there, Professor uh, Dave. He's part of my Rex. So I created him because he was always very practical and never just optimistic, right? It was He was always created to say, here's the good, come up with a business outcome, don't just fall in love with the tech, and always, always, always understand the challenges that you have to deal with. So that's how I came up with those two characters. Those two are probably my very favorite, but I have other characters too in here that just represent different people that I've met, run into, and just love throughout my career. And that's how, yeah, that's how I came up with them. I think one of the favorite things in the book was V to, you know, to bring that humanness around her, like you talked about, is she seems to walk in the room and she says GM. Yeah. And GM is the way she says good morning. And I thought that was really cool. Is that something that that you do or that you've experienced with somebody else? Yeah. Well, you know, that is a big Web3 blockchain thing. You, you don't come in and you don't say good morning. You say GM, GM, GM. And I wanted her to be hip and cool. So I had her open up uh, her meeting saying GM. You know, I thought it was just fitting for the the ethos. I try to get in there, not just the technology, but the, you know, there is an ethos, a culture, a community that surrounds all of these emerging tech. And I wanted to bring a little bit of that in as well, not just the, you know, the tech itself, not just the business, but also the culture that it evokes around it. So throughout the story, you talk about the archetypes that are needed to bring the metaverse to reality in an organization. You talk about some of the challenges. You talk about some of the trust issues, identity, interoperability. So you bring up a lot of those key points in a very entertaining way through the story. So kudos to you. I think you did a really good job of bringing up those challenges in a way that was really easy for people to understand and actually enjoy. So I thought that was great. Thank you. I really, I really do appreciate that. And I do believe, you know, that um, you do have to understand uh, the technology, even if you're a business leader, you have to understand uh, the opportunities and the outcomes. And then, of course, you always have to, you know, any great plan for me has a plan A, a plan B, a plan C based on, you know, what some of the obstacles are. So I really wanted to bring that out, too. And thank you for saying that, because I have to tell you, Marnie, I was very nervous doing the dialogue. That was my really, my hardest part was figuring out how to do the dialogue and how to make it interesting. So I actually had my daughters read it, proof it for me. Um, I had some of my friends proof it. I had some of my daughter's friends proof it because I wanted to make sure that it was not too boring. So thank you for saying that. So now let's move from the fable to the application. I think you call your model empowerment. Is that correct? That's right. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, as we moved into this, I want uh, this section on the best practices. Um, for me, it was really around how do you empower yourself and how do you empower your team? And so I really wanted to bring out these frameworks that you could use. And again, I, I say over and over again that 
you know, the playbook is still being written. So this is what I've seen working with all these companies. This is how I would start and approach it. But it's going to change over time. It's going to change as you work with it. It's going to change based on your company's culture. So I want you to feel empowered to make the right decisions and to deviate from the model as well. Um, I've seen some people create frameworks and they're really structured and they really feel like if it's not done exactly as said, then it won't work. And so for me, the empowerments are in the power of the rabbit team, right? Creating that team. Team for me is most important. If you don't have the right people, basically anything you do won't be successful. You've got to have the right set of people. You have to have that power of ownership and, and brand and digital identity. You have to have the power of creating that community. Um, and I brought in customer obsession because I drink the Kool-Aid at Amazon. Amazon is so customer obsessed and I feel like it's such secret sauce and so much of a superpower. I brought in the power of developing experiences in the metaverse. I do think experiences are really powerful. And in fact, I can't remember the Gartner analyst who said this, but I love the quote that says, the last form of pure competitive advantage is the experiences that you can create. And then uh, last but not least is the power of artificial intelligence. So those are kind of the empowerment framework. And I just felt like, you know, I wanted that to be empowering to the leader and to the team itself as they went forward. And speaking of empowerment, you also brought up this idea of DAOs, the Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. And one of the quotes in the book, you say, DAOs are here to give power back to the people. And I thought that was nice how it tied back into that empowerment theme as well. Yeah. And DAOs are really interesting. And again, they're still just at the early phase. You know, there are full companies that are DAOs today. And some have done really well at it, like the pizza DAO I talk about. Some move too slow because they are a DAO and they don't have enough, I guess, autonomy and, you know, to be able to move quick enough and the world moves very quick. So I think we have a lot of learning to do there as well. So you seem to be pretty bullish on the idea of a decentralized world. Would that be a fair statement? Yes. Do you, what are some of the signals that you see that we're even ready for that? It seems like it's such a big movement to move from kind of our centralized mentality to a decentralized world. What do you see happening around that that really gives you hope in that area? Yeah, I guess there's a couple of things. And I think it really starts with my children. So decentralization for me doesn't mean anarchy. Uh, decentralization for me means that people who own data get to decide how their data is being used. So, you know, when I was asking my daughter's friend about what birthday present she wanted, she wanted not a real world blouse or makeup or jewelry or bedspread. She wanted Robux, which are the digital currency that you spend in Roblox. And I just found that fascinating. And so for the book, I did some research and I found that the next generation really values digital assets. I mean, you can see it in gamers, uh, what they pay for and what they buy, digital assets. Um, that next generation really is interested in that and in fact values it more. And I'm also a adjunct professor at Carnegie Mellon and I find that the students there have high valuation of digital assets. And so I consider this almost like a, a digital decentralization. I think we're just beginning it today. And I do believe that we're probably not 
ready for it right now, but I do think it's coming. I do think, you know, from decentralized identity to decentralized gaming to decentralized uh, asset management, I see a lot of opportunity here to have owners be the people of the data, not necessarily a company. And getting permission to use that data being very powerful. Now, that being said, Marty, I'm also a realist. Like every Web3 company today that believes in decentralization is based on Google Cloud, Amazon Cloud, Microsoft Cloud, which are all not decentralized. So we do have a, a long way to go. But I do think we're going to get there based on that next generation. I don't know. Do you see that in your kids as well? Um, so my kids range in age. So I have an 11-year-old all the way up to a 27-year-old. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, I have a big range. So my 11-year-old, she is very much into, I'm going to call it the creator economy. She plays Roblox. She builds things. They trade things. They, they're they really much, very much into the digital. My older kids, not so much. But I do think about, and I liked how you said you're a realist too. When I think about it with decentralization, I, I think there's just so many hurdles right now. And as you said, we're not ready right now, but... For me, trust, interoperability, and identity are just huge hurdles. And I'm just curious how we're going to get there. And I know there's all these alliances. You talk about open metaverse, for example. But I feel like we've had so many alliances talking about so many emerging technologies. And I don't know how much it's moved us towards that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess I see it as a sign. You know, when you start to see standards groups, you know, I think at first, my view is when you have an emerging tech, like everybody's just off doing their own thing. And as you start to mature a little bit, you start seeing some groups go, oh, like we need interoperability in, in metaverses. We need to think about how we do, you know, assets and gaming. And I do think that having those thoughts and starting to come together does represent progress. I'm not saying that the alliance or the consortium is going to be the whole means of progress, but it is like that stage to me that that says that we're getting more mature. We're thinking about things in a deeper way, a deeper fashion. So we're like OMA3, you know, looking at, okay, so I create an asset in one metaverse. There are what, I don't know, thousands and thousands of metaverses. I can't take that with me into another metaverse. That doesn't make any sense. And so I do think that those conversations are great. Whereas, you know, I think a year and a half ago, no one really even asked that question. <laughs> it was like, let's build as many metaverses as we can. And now that question's starting to come up. And that's what gives me um, the confidence that I think the tech is maturing and will continue to mature as well. And I, I think that's a great point. I think the conversation is so important. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, it seemed to be the conversations I was having with clients was around, what is this thing? metaverse and I'm hearing about decentralization and manifestos and web three and all these things. What do I do with all this? And then it became, okay, I think it's starting to make sense. What are the opportunities and what are the challenges that we need to go through? And so I think it's as we kind of look at the hype cycle or, or other visualizations, it, it just goes through peaks and valleys of interest and conversation and advances. For me, when somebody asks, when are we going to get to a the metaverse when is everything going to come together and and all of that i actually won't even hazard a guess which, which is rare for me as a futurist i love to make those guesses but i won't even hazard that guess how would you answer that when are we going to get to a one metaverse to rule them all solve the identity interoperability trust all of those other problems when would you guess that's going to happen 
you know, I don't know if this would be a popular answer, but maybe never. Um, you know, like even today, you know, would you say we have one internet? Mm, kind of, sort of, but not really, because there are all these intranets flowing out there. There's there's a lot of different versions of the internet and what people think that is. And I think the I think the metaverse will be kind of similar. I think we're going to have a lot of private metaverses. Even I know you guys call digital twins, right? Are really like little mini metaverses almost. Um, and I think those will continue to exist. And I think it's still okay. Um, and I think there'll be something like the internet. I think it'll be the next version of the internet that will be this immersive experience that will embed that thought of metaverse into it. So I don't know if there'll ever be just one big metaverse. I don't know. Do, do you really think at some point in time there'll be one metaverse? I like how you compare it to the way that there is sort of one internet. I do think eventually we'll get there. What it looks like, I I don't know yet. What I've always said, well, not always, but for the last few years, is that by the end of the decade, we'll have a clearer picture. There'll be some winners and losers, right? Some You mentioned there's like thousands of emerging metaverses popping up. You know, who are the real players? And what are the real use cases? And I think that'll start to clear itself up. Over the next several years, there's one strategic planning assumption that I've made at Gartner that says by 2026, people will spend about an hour a day in the metaverse. And for me, that includes spatial computing and virtual meetings and gamings and stuff like that. So if, if you think about that, that's really not a lot of time. After 2026, going to the end of the decade, like I said, I think things will start to clear itself out. But when we get to that one metaverse to rule them all, I, I just don't know. I kind of go back and forth, ask me on any given day, and I may change my answer. I know that's probably not a popular thing to say, but I think that's where I'm at with it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And I think I think ultimately the right question may be not when will there be one metaverse, but when will metaverses be valuable so that I'm using it at work, so that I'm using it, you know, in my uh, with my family so that I'm using it to learn. I think that's really a better question. And I think, you know, right now we're seeing powerful plays for metaverse and education, for example, in healthcare, especially brought on by COVID. And I think it's going to be industry dependent for that, Marty. I think the acceptance of using metaverse in those situations will be more industry dependent. And I think will come about in different phases and I think all now, my opinion, will be used AI. I think that now the metaverse without AI, I don't know in the future if it would exist because I think the way you'll do avatars, the way you'll do governance, the way that you'll uh, you know, generate some of the content, I think will be done by AI as well. I could talk to you all day about all of these things. And every time you mention AI and metaverse, I'm thinking about other emerging technologies we need to get into, like digital humans, for example. And and all those other topics, but unfortunately, we just don't have the time today to do that. I really do appreciate you coming on and spending the time with us. I, I really love the book, The Tiger and the Rabbit. So please, listeners, go check it out on Amazon.com. Great read, great descriptions of how to start understanding and working in metaverse and AI and Web3 in your strategies. So I thought that was great. There, there's one thing, Sandy, I ask all of my guests to do, so I'm going to put you on the spot. If, if you had to leave our listeners with one golden nugget, I know you love quotes, but if, if, if the, you left them with one golden nugget, what would it be? Yeah, I think, 
you know, for me, this is the golden nugget. And, and I will use another quote. We tend to overestimate the impact of technology in the short term. I think that's what creates your hype cycles. You know, we want the metaverse to be everything now. We want AI to work perfectly now. So we tend to overestimate the impact of technology in the short term, but we underestimate the impact of it in the long term. And I think that's where all these emerging techs really thrive is in that long-term play. That's why a rabbit team is so important. That's why it's important to listen to a podcast like this one, because you're you're thinking about these things in the long term. You're not looking for that short-term gain. So for me, that would be it. Don't overestimate the impact of technology in the short term, and definitely don't underestimate the impact of technology in the long term. Okay, that's impressive. I put you on the spot and you just rattle that off. That was great. Sandy, thanks again for your time today. I really appreciate it and hope in the future you'll be joining us again. Thank you, Marty. Thanks for having me. And thanks for uh, you know being a futurist. I think we need futurists in the world. And thanks uh, to Gartner for hosting me today. Please subscribe and share the episode with your colleagues. Thank you for listening. Gartner Podcasts are a production of Gartner, the world's leading research and advisory company, equipping executives across the enterprise with indispensable insight, advice, and tools to achieve their mission-critical priorities. You can learn more at Gartner.com. All content in Gartner Podcasts is owned by Gartner and cannot be repurposed or reproduced without Gartner's consent. Gartner is an impartial, independent analyst of business and technology. This content should not be construed as a Gartner endorsement of any enterprise's product or services. All content provided by other speakers is expressly the views of those speakers and their organizations.